0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by
1: learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything
0: delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show. I'm dedicated to delicious dishes for every holiday and celebration. And on this program, we go way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, emerging trends, and delectable recipes. And it's my goal to bring you the best interviews, products, and insight into the wide world of food. So I hope that you'll tune in every Sunday for delicious inspiration and culinary conversation. I cover All things that feed your soul, from food and wine and mixology to travel, tech, health, and more. And you can always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. My daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at chefjamiegwen, and you'll find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry under Food & Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen, so please check them out. So this Sunday marks the Sunday post-Thanksgiving, and I wonder, are you still full? I hope that your feast was glorious and that it was filled with friends and family and fun And all of the wonderful things that holidays bring us together for. If you still happen to have leftovers from your holiday meal, today is probably the last day, if not tomorrow, that you should be using them up. So I thought I'd share some chef's thoughts on uh, last few leftover ideas for your Thanksgiving feast If you still have the carcass or the bones left from your Thanksgiving turkey, I do suggest, uh, strongly recommend, in fact, that you make stock or soup because there's something really warming and just soul satisfying about turkey soup. And there's something really glorious about using it all up, right? Right. The most wonderful way to make a turkey soup from the leftover turkey from the holiday is to actually add some of the ingredients from the rest of the meal. So I take the carcass and the bones and any bits of meat that are left and put them in a stock pot. I add about a half a cup of leftover stuffing. I know it sounds crazy, but it gives you this wonderful texture for soup. This isn't, of course, stock that you might store and use at a later date. This is hearty, rustic, you know, uh, just heartwarming soup. And then I add in, of course, onions and carrots and celery. You can add garlic and fresh parsley and bay leaves, salt and black peppercorns. You add enough cold water to cover everything in the pot. And then you bring it to a simmer and you let it cook on top of the stove for a couple of hours. And you have this really decadently delicious leftover turkey soup. I think it's really Scrumptious, I should say. There's, of course, the perfect uh, day after or leftover Thanksgiving sandwich. This is what I was eating on Friday. It was um, toasted sourdough bread with a smear of mayonnaise and some of the cranberry chutney left from Thanksgiving, and then freshly sliced turkey left over, and some slices of triple cream brie cheese, and then some hot gravy over the top. That is, I think, the ultimate sandwich. For sandwich lovers all across the country, the, the ritual of the transformation of holiday leftovers is a celebration in and of itself. And by the way, that sandwich I believe must be eaten standing over the kitchen counter or the sink, and you should chase it with a slice of pie for sure. And then last but not least, if you're looking for a luscious leftover that's baked and can feed the whole crowd. You can take all the leftover meat from your turkey and make a turkey cobbler. I like to top mine with a cheddar biscuit, whether it's store-bought or homemade biscuit dough. It's like the best of a turkey pot pie, right? So just use all the goodness of the leftover turkey, the veggies, even stuffing and gravy to wet it all together. And then top it with your biscuit or topping of choice and bake it off and you have a really beautiful casserole. Okay, with Thanksgiving behind us, we are moving on to December holidays, of course. And Frank wrote me a lovely email this past week. You can too, by the way. You send your recipe requests or your queries to jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. He asked me for help to make a classic tart tan. And I was very glad that you asked, Frank, because... I learned to make this classic French dessert, which I think is the perfect ending to any holiday meal from my mom. And I always make a Tarte Tatin to ring in the new year as a New Year's Eve party dessert. According to a 1984 edition of La Russe Gastronomique, the Tarte Tatin recipe was actually first served in Paris at Maxims, or Maxims, however you say it, giving um, a bow to its creators. The creators were the famous Tatan sisters. The Tatin's sisters, Stephanie and Caroline, came up with this irresistible dessert quite by accident at the end of the 19th century. They were running their hotel restaurant south of Paris. And the story goes that the apples were caramelizing in sugar and butter and they burned the apples. So they simply plopped pastry on top of it. They baked it and then they flipped the tart upside down and thus an apple tart tatin was born. If you don't know it, it is the beautiful French pastry that is crispy underneath with caramelized, golden, shimmering, really luscious apples on top. And from then on, because of the tatin sisters, the tart tatin was served as their specialty until they retired in 1906. And since then, the French sweet has been referred to with credit to them. Now, when it comes to making a Tarte it does not matter how perfect or imperfect it looks on the plate because it still tastes like something that came directly from heaven. Tender apples in a deeply caramelized sugar sauce. I mean, what could be better, right? Now, plain old Granny Smith apples are fine for making a Tarte but Honey crisps are better. I happen to love a honey crisp apple to bake with and to eat out of hand. They hold up really well, though, in the rigorous caramelization process of a tartitan, and they have a sweet tart flavor, which really translates to a very pure apple flavor when you pit it against the rich caramel. Now that said. You should feel free to experiment with other apple varieties or a mix of apples if you have them in the fridge or in the fruit bowl. Anything that holds up well to baking will work well. And I like to cut the apples in quarters because it helps them to hold their shape. Anything thinner uh, definitely turns into applesauce. And then most importantly, Frank, when it comes to a tartatan, tan, do not be intimidated by the flip. In many ways, that is the stressful part of making a tarte tétan, But I suggest that you run a knife around the edge of the crust and then you get a firm grip on the plate and the skillet before you flip it. And because the tart tan is still warm, just keep in mind and, you know, I will say calm your nerves because it's very easy to nudge the apples back into place that might've fallen out of line or stuck to the pan. Now, a tartatan will taste incredible no matter what happens during the flip. It's a sure thing. It's supposed to be rustic. The beauty is in caramelizing the apples, and it is all about the patience. I have what I think is the ultimate classic tart recipe posted at chefjamie.com. Some vanilla ice cream, vanilla bean, maybe tangy creme fraiche for spooning over the top. I guarantee if it's your first try or your 50th, It is a total win. So I hope that you will send me photos and dish with me on your holiday tart to Tan. Once again, you can email me anytime, jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, it's time for food news this week. At the holidays, and anytime actually, I encourage you to make real freshly whipped cream. You know that. But if you have to resort to the can, because sometimes late night pie, that's a binge, right? It needs a can of whipped cream. So I have some news on Ready Whip. Ready Whip has always been made with real cream and ingredients that you recognize. And it is much beloved in this country. Beloved, in fact. But I read news this week in a press release, in fact, that Ready Whip is coming out with non-dairy alternatives. They're made with coconut milk and almond milk. So if you're allergic to dairy, rejoice. These new cans of whipped topping should be available in time for the next pie holiday. And that is news you can use, right? (laughs) Coming up in this hour, there's more culinary education to be had. Elaine Koshrover, the author of Butter, A Rich History, is stopping by to dish on what is my favorite, fat. And her new book is a beautiful read. Also, before the end of the hour, Pastry chef and uh, magazine editor, in fact, Genevieve Coe, will teach us to bake better. We're using more wholesome ingredients, and she has tested and retested recipes that I believe will make your holidays so much sweeter. And don't touch your dial, because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up. A very good Sunday to you. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and we'll be back with more fabulous food right after this. Season's greetings to you and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. After traveling across three continents to chart the modern story of butter, award-winning food writer and former pastry chef Elaine Kosrova is serving up a story as rich and textured and culturally relevant as butter itself. In her new book release called Butter – a rich history. Elaine delivers the story of butter, the delectable kitchen staple. Everyone loves, right? And shares not only its culinary culture, but insight on how to make the perfect buttercream and more. Author Elaine Kosrova is here to dish, or rather churn, I should say. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Jamie. Congratulations. Uh, the book is a thank, wonderful read. Thank you so much.
1: I, I was hoping people would feel that
0: way. <laughs> well, I know it's a labor of love for you. It's, um, in the book, a, a very romantic side to butter that you share and I would love if you can tell us about your travels and what inspired you to dig deep on butter.
1: I've been a food writer for almost 30 years, but I, for most of that time, I took butter for granted, like, mm. like most people. You know, it was always in my fridge. I used it. I grew up with a Scottish mother, so there's always plenty of butter around. But I never really thought of it as a food topic to write about. It was just so common. Mm. And then one day several years, about nine years ago, in fact, I sat down to a butter tasting and was astonished by the the changes, you know, the differences in color and texture and flavor and aroma. And I thought, God, this is made essentially with one ingredient, butter. You know, you put cream or milk in a churn, you agitate it in the churn, and then you have butter. And yet here were all these variations. And so I couldn't explain it. So I was... um, kind of fascinated right then and there. Mm. And I was lucky enough to then move from that job to uh, editor of Culture Magazine, which is all about cheese. So I was in the dairy world for almost five years. And from that experience, I was able to really understand what was going on on that tasting table, because essentially, butter is the result of three very dynamic things coming together, man, land, and beast. And these things change from culture to culture and season to season, place to place. And that's how you can end up with all these variations. And so through my work at the magazine, I did get to travel quite a bit. You know, I went to Ireland and um, to France and, you know, very much dairy countries, England. And I got to taste a lot of different butters. And that really, that was, you know, just great for me. At that point, I felt like there's a book here. There's definitely a book in
2: this topic. I wasn't
1: actually that eager to write a book. I love writing for magazines. (laughs) And a book was very daunting. But I just couldn't believe that one didn't exist.
0: Yes, but it's so overdue. And credit to you, it's being lauded your book on Amazon and beyond having just released as the number one new release. So there are fascinated food lovers like us, who want to learn and understand more. I'm very intrigued by a butter tasting, as you just mentioned it. I say very often on the radio that you should have a salt tasting in your own kitchen, that you should put out a few different salts and understand and know the different flavor profiles of kosher salt and uh, Himalayan pink and uh, fleur de sel, right? So that you know what your palate Prefers, and then you use that salt in your cooking. But a butter tasting, I've never hosted. That's a party to plan.
1: Oh, definitely. (laughs) I did one, actually, this past summer uh, for the American Cheese Society Convention. And this is a very, dairy savvy audience, obviously. You know, they sat down to a platter of about uh, eight different butters, I think, we had, including a goat butter, water buffalo butter, sheep butter. Uh, It was really fascinating. Oh, for sure. What is
0: the... um, what is the medium to taste butter? Do you taste it straight at a butter tasting? Yes, I do. You
1: don't. You know, it's so you don't actually need a lot to taste it. It's a very rich food, so That's true. you know, you just need a little taste, and Fabulous. it registers right away.
0: I love the idea. I, would you give us a, a backstory on butter, please? Because I was fascinated reading through the beginning of your book to find out, and it makes perfect sense, but I don't think I ever put the pieces together in my own mind, that butter was most probably uh, a a happenstance, right? Like a fabulous finding from traveling with or carrying the milk, right? That the churning process was a a natural occurrence and it's what brought butter to us.
1: We'll never know exactly when and where it happened for the first time. And Probably it happened in several places you know around the world of nomadic people, because it would have started with people that had animals, dairy animals, and were nomadic, so that that milk uh, that they harvested from the animals and then carried usually in a in a goat skin because it's uh, not porous, mm-hmm. you know they carried on their backs or on the on a, another animal, and through the process of just rocking back and forth on on a journey you're agitating the fat molecules in that milk, and that's how you get butter. So most likely it was a, a very big surprise <laughs> for people at one point, <laughs> a very nice
0: surprise. A I lovely think. surprise, for sure. And the process of making butter today, mass-marketed, is consistent uh, around most places in the world but the the regional varieties and butter from local dairies is no doubt gaining ground what differentiates uh, artisan butters in your opinion from the traditional
1: very different process the industrial creameries use something called a butyrator, mm-hmm. and it is is massive continuous churn it's what they also refer to it in the industry so it's a very giant piece of equipment that's fully automated Cream goes in, and three seconds later you have butter and also before the cream goes in the churn i should I should mention this because a lot of people don 't know you know in the supermarket butter, we have that velvety spreadable texture it 's you know very dependable consistency that we find in the supermarket butters, mm-hmm. and that comes from a process of tempering the cream before it 's churned, so it goes through this fine calibration of uh, hot temperature, cold temperature, hot temperature, not hot exactly, but warm. So, you know, this this fluctuation, and what that does is it creates the, the perfect ratio of solid and crisp, uh, liquid fats mm-hmm. within the cream. So you naturally have within cream solid or crystalline fats and liquid fats. So when you get them in the right proportion, you get a beautifully spreadable butter. If you had, for instance, a lot of... Uh, soft, liquid fats, your butter could be too greasy, and if you had a lot of the crystalline fats, your butter could be too crumbly and hard. So the industrial producers have perfected this, you know, very much. You know, we see it all the time. I mean, we take it for granted, but when you actually make your own butter, you know, when you strive for that texture, it's, it's very tricky to achieve a really beautiful, cohesive, velvety texture. So that's one thing about the industrial production, you know, and... Smaller batch creameries, they use what's called a, a batch churn, and it looks like a giant uh, clothes dryer. Imagine something mm. like the size of a, a one-car garage, but it's, it's round and, and uh, with a window on it. And the cream goes into a batch churn, and it's operated by a person. They turn it on, and it churns for almost an hour. It depends, again, on the season and, you know, the fat composition. Churning time can change quite a bit. So a person is monitoring that, and they're they're looking at the grains of butter. They're listening to the sound of the churn, because when the butter gets to a certain stage of doneness, so to speak, it makes a thunderous sound. It kind of rocks around the churn. It makes a loud sound. And so this is, you know, it's very much more hands-on, and that's that's, that's a commercial creamery as opposed to a really small artisan you know tiny creamery
0: elaine if you'll please pause there we'll take a quick break when we come back more on butter and its rich history after the break Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as we celebrate season's eatings. I love the fun facts in your book as well. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. The author, uh, award winning food writer, former pastry chef Elaine Kosrova is here, and we are dishing on her new book release called Butter, A Rich History. Can you highlight the virtues of oleic acid for us and the tiny air bubbles. The two things about butter I think were so interesting from I can't believe it's butter. I love the fun facts again.
1: Well oleic acid is of course the fatty acid that's rich in olive oil and people don't realize that about a third of butter has you know this very same fatty acid. Butter has you know obviously saturated fat we all know that but what we are also beginning to understand is that Saturated fats vary quite a bit. You know, they, they do different things. And some of them are actually quite good for you. You, you know, they're healthy. I mean, look at what's happened with coconut oil, right? right. It become so popular. That's fully saturated fat. So oleic acid is in that, that category. Hmm. And when you talk about the air bubbles, are you talking about when you're creaming something?
0: Yes, because it's the little tiny air bubbles, seeing that we're in a season of baking, that give you the the loftiness, the tenderness, the crumb of the perfect pound cake, right?
1: It's very important to whip the, the butter and the eggs and sugar for almost as long as you can stand to whip them. You can't over whip it. Uh, this is for a pound cake, a traditional one, like the one in my book um, that doesn't even use leavening. That was the traditional way. They did it and they put it in a cold oven. So uh, that's the pound cake in my book. Um, but in in any cake that you're making where you're using butter and sugar and, and eggs, it's important to really do that creaming process first mm-hmm. of creaming the butter and the sugar for quite a while, a good five minutes or seven minutes if you can. And that creates these tiny air bubbles. And then when you add leavening, the leavening essentially expands those pre-existing air bubbles and
0: that's what gives you that loft in your cake Hmm. see now i don't mean to be an i told you so but (laughs) i have been saying for years that we don't utilize our kitchen appliances enough like when i run my blender for cauliflower soup i run my blender i want it to be smooth and just voluptuous and like you know coats your mouth with velvet wallpaper kind of feel and that rule really very interestingly applies to baking as well as you talk about you know just when the butter sugar and eggs or otherwise are incorporated is not the time to stop the the butter sugar process of of uh aeration is what you're speaking to is so vital
1: so vital yeah you can really make a, a mm. substantial you know visible difference in, in your cakes you fabulous
0: butter and sugar longer. Can we talk biscuits, please? Oh, sure. (laughs) Okay. The very best biscuit I ever tasted was in the South, and they were baked together in like a pie pan, Elaine. Not individuals, interestingly enough. I wondered if that was from the steaming process. They were like clouds. Just the most delectable biscuits. That's a culinary, a food memory you know did you get the recipe I, I did I did but you know I'm always looking for something new and different so your pull-apart biscuits very much reminded me of that
1: they do use a particular flower in the south right that yes
0: means,
1: yes Is what's the name white, of it? white it's white called lily. white
0: lily right
1: white lily yeah I wish we got that flower here I do think that that makes a difference a
0: world of difference but you use all-purpose
1: uh I do use all-purpose flour yeah to me it's It's a lot of techniques, you know, sort of gently folding it over and over Mm. um, so you get this natural layering and then making sure it's in a really good hot oven so they expand quickly.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and how about buttercream? Leave us with something sweet. Your best tips for the the perfect holiday cake. Yeah, I was
1: really uh, very happy to discover uh, several years ago an old-fashioned buttercream called ermine frosting. And it's very different uh, than, you know, the usual American homemade frosting where people put butter and confectioners' sh- sugar in in the mixer and just beat it. Um, and that's always been too sweet for me. I don't really like those buttercreams, and I do myself make a European buttercream where I cook the sugar to a certain temperature and beat that into the eggs and let it cool and then beat the butter in It's It's a more advanced, buttercream that I love, but and it's in my book, but I wanted one that was more accessible for the average baker. And so this one's so interesting because you make a paste of uh, milk and flour and sugar. You essentially cook it in a pot, make a thick, gluey paste. It doesn't look very appealing. <laughs> it's like a glue. You let that cool, and then you beat your butter in the mixer, I use, you know, a stand mixer uh, till it's nice and soft and fluffy, and then you gradually add in this paste, and it comes out, you know, beautiful. It has stability. It has a really nice body. It's not too sweet. Hmm. I, I really love it. It's become my shortcut frosting now.
0: Oh, I can't wait to make it. And the recipe is shared in the new book release, and so we thank you for that, of course, The fascinating history and culinary culture of butter is documented in Elaine Casrova's new book entitled Butter, A Rich History. And it is a fabulous read for food lovers. I thank you, Elaine, for sharing your passion. I wish you a wonderful holiday season and congratulations on the success of the book. There is no doubt it is filled with um, beautiful storytelling and tremendous passion.
1: Thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate your interest. So nice to talk to
0: you. And nice to talk with you as well. I hope you'll come back soon. I will. Happy holidays. As the delicious conversation continues, stay tuned. Don't touch your dial because you just might learn something. There is more fabulous food in your radio right after this. This is your culinary playground every Sunday. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. Genevieve Coe says that it's time to change the way we bake. After more than a dozen years of developing recipes for food and health magazines and collaborating with noted pastry chefs, Genevieve was determined to create treats that were just as indulgent as their original counterparts. But in a word, Better. In her new cookbook release entitled Better Baking, which you will love, she shares insight into how healthful oils prove superior to butter, how refined white sugar pales behind concentrated sweeteners like pure maple syrup and molasses, and how those nubby flowers with personality like whole wheat and rye bring richness to desserts. Just in time for the holiday baking season, Genevieve Coe is here to give your baking a makeover. And I welcome you, Genevieve. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. The book is beautiful. and Oh, thank you. I learned so much. I, I loved that you cracked the code through <laughs> what must have been very extensive testing and trial and error, I'm sure. Um, but yes. share with us your general findings so that we can all be better bakers.
2: So what I found over so many years of baking, both at home and professionally, is that Desserts could actually taste even better when adding more wholesome ingredients. My goal for all of my desserts, and especially for the ones in Better Baking, is to make them actually not just as indulgent as the classics, but to make them even more delicious. So flavor and texture always came first. And the way that I was able to do that was by using things like nuts and seeds and fruits and sweet vegetables, whole grains, healthy fats, like you mentioned. And when I added in those ingredients, the desserts ended up having even more complex flavors, more indulgent textures. So you weren't just getting hit with a sugar bomb that just tasted like mm. sugar, butter and white flour, but mm. that you're getting really complex flavors and that the ha- that you know that these ingredients happen to also be good for you is just a side benefit. So it's really nice to be able to eat these desserts and indulge and really feel nourished both in body and in
0: soul. I love the bonus factor of it, like you speak about. I happen to appreciate, though, that you're not anti-butter. No, um, you, no, there
2: is plenty of butter in the Yes.
0: <laughs> and sugar, right. Yes. Right, so you and I can definitely be friends. Yes, uh, absolutely. But there are wonderful fats to take advantage yes. of, the mouthfeel, the flavor profile, and so on of. So let's talk fats for a minute. Instead of Absolutely. butter or in addition, what do you use and when?
2: I love to use oils that have flavor and character. So olive oil is one of my favorites, especially a Spanish arbequina olive oil. Oh, yes. actually some, if you just taste a little bit of it on its own, there's a little bit of fruitiness in there. Mm-hmm. And when you add it to a baked good, it brings this complex sort of fruitiness, but a hint of savoriness. And it's not like you eat something and you taste olive oil. But it does just lend this extra aroma to the dessert.
0: More sweets for your sweet right after the break. Don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. very sweet holiday season to you. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Genevieve Coe, author of Better Baking is here and we're baking cookies and cakes and muffins galore. Let's talk recipes, can we Genevieve? Because your flourless blueberry muffins caught my immediate attention. Oh good. (laughs) I can't wait to make those.
2: So I love these blueberry muffins because they get really crusty on the outside. Yes. I love the golden brown crust. I saw
0: that. I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to lick the page. But they
2: stay really moist inside. Nice. Really moist and really tender. And they do that because they actually um, have no flour or no grains at all. It's a combination of almond flour and coconut flour. And it's bound by those two flours and bananas. And actually doesn't have refined sugar but pure maple syrup instead. And so the inside stays so moist Mm. and the outside gets so nice and
0: crusty. Now, I must say um, page 101 in the book might be worth the book alone (laughs) because there is a product we love and available across the country on the market for this yummy, crisp, crunchy cracker. And I have been paying way too much for them, Genevieve, because you <laughs> have duplicated this golden raisin pecan thin, and it will be the first thing I bake from your book.
2: Oh, good. Oh, good. I have, you know, I have to confess, I love them too. My, um, my daughter, Charlotte, and I used to buy a whole box, which is nearly $10, which is sort of... Yes, outrageous, right? We would eat it in one sitting. I know. <laughs> so, so I thought to myself, this can't, we can't go on like this. We can't go on like this. Um, So I began tinkering and experimenting, experimenting, and I ended up adding my own little twist. um, One by using, you know, half of the flour in there is whole wheat flour, and it really makes them even more satisfying and tastier. But the other little addition, um, which was from my daughter Charlotte, the one who loves these crisps as well, is fresh tarragon.
0: Love that, that that herbaceous.
2: Yeah, that little herbaceousness, especially on the holidays, is so nice. I On think a cheese plate, it's awesome.
0: Oh, for sure. I think chestnut kisses would be nice to have around the holidays, too. I cannot wait to bake those cookies. I have um, peeled and steamed chestnuts from my uh, favorite produce company and a, a proud supporter of this show, Melissa's. And I'm figuring I can open the bag and have cookies made in a jiffy. Yes, this is
2: such a quick recipe. This is a one bowl recipe. You just throw everything in a food processor and whiz it up, and then, you know, pop out the cookies, stick the Hershey kisses in and you have these really adorable gorgeous mm. cookies. Yeah, I mean. And the chestnuts really give it this malty sort of butterscotchy flavor.
0: Mm. So really holiday. And again,
2: great for any friends who are gluten-free. It's um, I would say it's even tastier than the originals.
0: Oh, so smart. And then leave us with olive oil brown sugar pumpkin bunt cakes, please, because that sounds quintessential holiday.
2: Yes, absolutely. This is one of the first recipes that I created for the book, and I tinkered and tinkered with it and actually um, brought it to a dinner party full of food editors, and when they all loved it, then I knew it was a winner. Oh, that's brave. Yes, I know. (laughs) It's always nerve-wracking bringing it to fellow, fellow food professionals, but they loved it, and so I thought, oh, that's great. Um, This is a a classic pumpkin cake, you know, nice, big, thick bun cake. But instead of using butter, I actually used olive oil, like we had talked about earlier. And blending that olive oil with the pumpkin and with applesauce makes this cake
0: incredibly Mm, moist. For sure. the
2: beauty of using the oil is that it actually keeps it moist for quite a while. So you can definitely make it ahead of time. I tried it up to like five days after making it, and it was still just as moist as day one. And when you bake it, the whole house smells like the cinnamon and nutmeg and cardamom. And it's a lovely cake that you can do for breakfast or tea if you're having people over in the afternoon and certainly after dinner, too. It's a nice, nice cake to have around.
0: Okay, I'm in. I will be um, wonderfully loving cooking from your cookbook and baking from the book. So congratulations to you. Thank you so Uh, much. It's a beautiful work of art. The, The photography is icing on the cake. Pun intended. Uh, (laughs) Genevieve Coe is a food writer and recipe developer. Uh, She has been the editor at Good Housekeeping, Martha Stewart Living, and Gourmet. And her new cookbook release entitled Better Baking offers something for every baker with gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, nut-free options, and everything in between. You can find the book available everywhere, in fact. And you can see a few sneak peek recipes on her website at Genevieve Coe. Jennifer, will you come back and bake with us again soon, please?
2: Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure.
0: And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. I certainly hope that I satiated your appetite and that you elevated your tastes because on this show, we are rich on flavor. I hope that you'll tune in every Sunday for more delicious conversation, that you'll check out chefjamie.com where I'm always serving up seconds and that you'll track my daily dish escapades on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. Uh, If you know me well and you've listened to this show for many years, you know I love a super easy five-ingredient anything. Well, this three-ingredient recipe is sure to please. I have a new football addiction, you see. Everyone loves chicken wings, right? Me too. I make buffalo and Old Bay and sriracha wings, but my newest creation is Indian inspired and it is so flavorful. You are going to want to make these garam masala chicken wings. And by the way, they have only three ingredients you take chicken wings or uh, the little wing drumsticks and you season them with a mixture of salt and garam masala and then in order to keep them crispy by the way you'll want to make sure that you dry them well with paper towels before you coat them then you lay them on an olive oil greased baking sheet And you roast them in the oven, high heat, 450 degrees. They take about 30 minutes or so. And they get crispy and the spice blend from the garam masala seeps through. And they are so scrumptious. I will post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. You'll be making three ingredient Indian chicken wings in no time. And I'll meet you here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.